Hey, if you have your Bible, uh, open it to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 6 is where we're going to spend the morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, same as always, there should be one of these around you on the floor. It's page 677 in that Bible. You probably have that memorized by now uh, if you've been here every week of this series because that's where we're always going. Page 677, Matthew chapter 5. Hey, when you walked in this morning, hopefully you received a piece of chocolate. Did everybody get a piece of chocolate when you walked in? Uh, And I think you were given instructions not to eat it. But it's okay. Has anybody eaten their chocolate already? This is a place of mercy and forgiveness. If you have, it's all right. If you haven't, would you get that out and just hold, on, hold that in your hand for a minute? I, I want you to, in fact, just open it up right now. How many, is there anybody in the room that doesn't like chocolate? Are there people that don't like chocolate? You, you don't have to participate if you don't like chocolate. That's okay. You can just leave right now. In fact, uh, I'm not even sure you're a Christian. Um, just hold it in your hand. Just feel it. What does that chocolate feel like? Just Maybe even smell it. You smell that? I was just kidding about leaving, Ginger. You don't have to literally leave. <laughs> I'm just kidding. What, is that, what does that do to you just to smell that? And then, and then don't, don't eat it yet, but like put your tongue on it. Yeah. <laughs> I can't get my tongue off of it. All right, you can put it away now. No, I'm just kidding. No, you can take it. Take a bite. Take it. You know, if you... If you love chocolate, and most of us do, unless you're allergic or unless um, just for some weird reason you don't like chocolate, most of us know what it's like to crave chocolate, don't we? We know what it's like to hunger for chocolate. And there are some times when you just get that, that urge, and there is nothing else that would satisfy you in that moment other than a piece of chocolate. It's a pretty familiar feeling, right? I'm sorry as I chew my chocolate. Well, Jesus talked about a hunger for something else, a different kind of hunger. And here's what he said in Matthew 5, 6. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I think many of us came in the room this morning and and we feel much like this, that your soul is hungry, your heart's thirsty, you, you have an insatiable desire for something. You don't really know what it is. You can't really, you know, say the words that will help describe what that hunger and thirst is. But everywhere you look, it seems like the grass is greener, people are happier, somebody has more or, or has a better life, and somebody knows something that you don't. And the sad part is, for, for many of us, that urge, that hunger, that desire is really the Spirit of God calling out to us. And, and for so many of us, we keep turning away. Because we don't think we'll find the satisfaction there. You, you look instead for the things of this world to satisfy that hunger of thirst. You, we look for relationships or sex. We look for addictions, drugs, or alcohol, or even really harmless things like kids' sports or decorating our houses or things like that that we really think are going to make us happy. They're going to satisfy us. Maybe it's things. Maybe it's things that you can buy. Really, anything that you think can bring you happiness or value that is apart from God, I think, falls into this category. And everything you try turns up empty. It it turns to dust. It leads to guilt and shame and loneliness. Drugs and alcohol take you away only to parachute you right back into your old life when the effects wear off. Now, the pursuit of things is a temporary satisfier that keeps building your appetite for more and more and more. It's like author C.S. Lewis once wrote. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so we're in this series, uh, week four of the series called Beautiful. What we've been doing is we're looking at the Beatitudes. And this is a series of statements that Jesus made at the beginning of what's probably his most famous sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. 
And they were used by Jesus to paint a picture of what the kingdom of heaven looked like. There were eight statements in total. And so if you like this series so far, we're only halfway done. Today marks the halfway point. If you haven't liked it so far, uh, come back in August. We'll talk about something else, I promise. Uh, but so far, we spent the first three weeks talking about these first three statements. And we've talked about blessed are those uh, who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, um, and blessed are those who, I forget the third one. No, blessed are those who, what is the third one? Blessed are those who are meek. Right, thank you. I really do know this. Um, We've talked about those three independently. We haven't really talked about how they go together. And so I thought we'd take a moment at the top of the service and just talk about how we go together. And so if you read Matthew, 3 through 12, or Matthew 5, 3 through 12, what you see, there are eight statements, eight what we call Beatitudes, verse 10 being the last one, and verse 11 and 12 in that kind of expand on or explain uh, verse 10. And so we've got eight Beatitudes in there. Both the first and the last Beatitude end with this promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so we talked about the poor in spirit a couple weeks ago. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, But if we look closer, we actually see that there are two sets of four. So in these eights, there are two sets of four. Kind of, uh, they both end with that. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of a blessing sandwich, okay, with the bread on top and the bread on bottom and the eight in the middle. But when we look at them, we can break them down into four. So this fourth one is kind of the transition point, all right? And so uh, verse four and, or the fourth and eighth one both talk about righteousness, The fourth one says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then verse 10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. So the more we think about this, the more significant it becomes. When we look at them, we see the first four are really about how we relate to God. All right, our our meekness, our uh, poor in spirit, the way we mourn is how we relate to God. And the last four are how we relate to our neighbor. It's a lot like the Ten Commandments in that way. Uh, And the fourth one, the one we're going to talk about today, verse 6, is really the bridge between those two halves. So let's look back for a moment at the first three. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. These three beatitudes aren't exactly action-packed, are they? They're they're not really things where you go, I'm going to go out and mourn today. You know, I'm going to go be meek in my life. You know, they're, they're more descriptions of passivity. They're descriptions of emptiness in a way. They're the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek. They are good and beautiful in their proper context, but they're not really the deep desires of our heart, are they? They're not the richness that we long for. And while being meek may be good, it's not really the deep desire of our heart. But look at how they build on one another. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the first one. The people who realize, we said week one, they can't do anything to earn God's favor. They don't have anything to offer God, but they don't need to because God loves them just the way they are. And so Jesus said, those people who know that are blessed. Now, if you know you have nothing to offer God, you understand he loves you just how you are, regardless of your sin, your response, your natural response will be the second one will be to mourn. God loves me no matter what I do, but man, I wish I weren't such a sinner. I wish we didn't have all this sin in the world. Your natural response is to mourn. Remember week two, we said mourning is an outward response to our grief on the inside. And when uh, week, last week, we talked about the meek and how meekness isn't weakness, but it's strength under control. And so now when you realize that you have nothing to, er- to offer God, you can't earn God's favor, that he loves you how you are, and then you start to mourn your sin, and the condition of this world, your natural response should be then to submit your power to God's authority. You become meek. 
And then once all that happens, you are becoming the person that God wants you to be. And then you look around the world and you see the injustice and you see our condition and then you begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. As you see, Jesus was really brilliant in the way he taught this. It's a natural progression from one to the other. And then in verse six, Jesus blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. So what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? If those four kind of build on each other, what does that mean? What's that righteousness that Jesus is talking about here? Well, last week, we had the benefit of knowing that when Jesus talked about blessed are the meek, he was quoting from Psalm 37. So we just went back to Psalm 37 and looked at what it meant to be meek. Unfortunately for us, in this case, Jesus isn't quoting any Old Testament passage. So what we can do, though, just like they taught me in third grade, is we can look for context clues. When we don't know what a word means, you go back and you look at how it's used. And and fortunately, Jesus used the word righteousness five times in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're able to go back and look at those times he used that and say, okay, what does that really mean? So the next place he uses this word is down in verse 10, Matthew 5.10. If you still got your Bibles open, uh, you might look there. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so because of this, I don't think Jesus is talking about our personal righteousness here, because, you know, how good we are, how, how well we conduct ourselves, because sometimes it happens. But rarely do we hear about somebody being persecuted because they're too good, right? We don't hear too much of, man, that person is so nice. I just want to really punch them in the face. You know, that person is so generous. We've got to do something about that, right? We, we don't get persecuted generally for our personal righteousness. That, that person is so forgiving, they've got something coming to them. You know, we don't hear that. And so Jesus even adds to that in verse 11. He said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus says, when you're persecuted because of me, because of Jesus. And I don't want to say too much about these verses because then I wouldn't have anything to talk about in four weeks, but I want to point your attention to the fact that the righteousness that Jesus is talking about isn't really our personal righteousness, but there's something that comes in our relationship with Jesus that has to do with it. It's not our niceness, our goodness that we need to hunger and thirst for but we get a little better indication if we go down to the next time he uses this word in verse 20. Matthew 5, 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you don't know this, the Pharisees, no matter what you might say about them, were sticklers for righteousness. They were some righteous people. They knew every piece of the law. There were uh, 613, most people say, 613 laws in the Old Testament. The Pharisees would have memorized all 613, were sticklers about keeping to all 613. That wasn't enough for them, so they even made up their own, and they were uh, intentional about sticking to the law. Now, what you may not know is the Old Testament actually has three different sets of law. Contained within the law, there are three different laws. There's a ceremonial law, Uh, This is the part of the law that had to do with how the nation of Israel was to worship. And so when you talk about ritual sacrifices, things that happened in the temple, this was uh, part of the ceremonial law. It was specific to the nation of Israel. And then there was the, the civil law. These were rules about how people in Israel were supposed to interact with one another. Uh, They were how to form a working society. So there were laws about inheritances and boundaries and what to eat and how to dress. And these were also specific to the nation of Israel. And so when Jesus came and offered a new covenant, you know, he freed us, the the non-Jewish believer, from adherence to these laws. So if you are in Christ, the rules of worship and and Jewish society, those are fulfilled. You don't have to follow those anymore. They They no longer apply to us. However, there was a third category of the law, and it's what we call the moral law. 
These are the direct commands of God. The moral law includes the Ten Commandments and other laws that reveal the nature of God and the will of God. And Jesus didn't abolish this law. In fact, he kind of raised the bar. We see this starting in Matthew 5.21, right? It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which basically means you fool, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. So while the civil and ceremonial law no longer apply to us as non-Jewish believers, the moral law still does. Jesus upheld that and raised the bar, not because we can gain salvation by following the moral law, but because it's the way of life that's pleasing to God. All right, so while the civil and ceremonial law no longer apply to us, the moral law still does, and not, not because we can gain salvation by that. So when someone says, why do Christians still care about the Ten Commandments, but it's okay for you to eat, ba- eat bacon? Well, you know why. You know, it's okay for me. I'm wearing a cotton poly shirt today. Well, in the nation of Israel, I couldn't do that because that was part of the civil law. But we still stick to the covenants of God, the, the, the command, direct commands of God. Does that make sense? So the the moral law is still here. So for the moral law, Jesus is still clear that that's still the way to live. He himself said that not one word will disappear from the law until it's accomplished. But the Pharisees, they were so worried about the moral law, but also the civil law and the ceremonial law, uh, because they were Jews, they were sticklers for keeping it. But Jesus reminded us, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of God. And then he went on to use these examples. He said, you know, you've heard it said, don't kill. But I say, don't hate. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say, don't even lust after a woman. Moses allowed for divorce, but I say it's because your hearts were hard, so don't do it. I mean, and then he allows the possible exception of if your spouse commits adultery. He says, don't just keep your promises, as was a command to Israel. You've got to keep your promises. But Jesus said, don't just keep your promises. Be the kind of person that you don't even have to make a promise because your yes always means yes and your no always means no. And then Jesus said, even though you're entitled to an eye for an eye, instead you should turn the other cheek. Don't return evil for evil. And he says, don't just love your neighbor, but love your enemy as well. Pray for those who persecute you. You see it? You see how he raises the bar on all the commands that were given? I mean, how is it possible? How is it possible that we could be as mortal, fallible human beings? How can we be this righteous? We can't. Good news this morning, right? We can't. It's, it's really uplifting sermon. You and I can't be this righteous ever. But see, righteousness for the Pharisees meant looking good on the outside so that everyone could see their righteousness. You could say they were more concerned with an external righteousness that impressed others and not an internal righteousness that impressed God. And that was the problem. I mean, Jesus continually addressed this with them. And so a little while later in Matthew 6, 1, Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward in heaven. According to Jesus, true righteousness begins in the secret place. It begins inside of us. It's an internal desire of the heart. That's why he uses the words hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let me ask, do you have that hunger and thirst? Do you want to set an example in purity for your children to follow? Do you... Have the desire for the Lord to use you in your workplace or in your school or in your neighborhood to draw people closer to him. Well, I'm so thankful that in the very next chapter, Jesus gives us the way to get that. It may be one of the most frequently quoted verses in the Bible. It's certainly one of my favorites. Matthew 6, 33 says this. But seek first his kingdom and his 
righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. What's the righteousness we crave? It's righteousness from God. It's God's righteousness, and his righteousness comes to us in three forms. And this is what I've included in your notes this week if you want to take notes. Uh, The first one is this. It's righteousness through faith. Scripture is very clear that our only salvation, our only hope of heaven, is through the grace of God, through our faith in Jesus Christ. And the totality of Scripture, as you read it, there's really no other way to interpret it. That's how we're saved, by the grace of God. Through our faith. Jesus taught, the rest of the New Testament communicates that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are made right or righteous with God. Uh, Romans 5 says it this way Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And so Jesus, who was perfect and holy in every way, becomes our righteousness. If we accept that free gift, we are justified with God. We're made right with God. We are made righteous in his eyes. Once we've made that decision, when we someday stand before God, and we will, you know, all of us will someday stand before God and have to answer for our lives. And for those of us who are in Christ, God will look at us and he will not see our life, but he will see Christ's life in our place that those of us who have made that decision to follow Jesus, that our sin will be forgiven, that our righteousness will be clear for all to see, but not because of us, but because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And many years ago, I had the chance, several years ago, to go to New York City on a business trip, and I'd never been to New York City. I had two days. I went with a colleague of mine, and uh, the first night, we were in the hotel kind of talking about what we wanted to eat, and we both decided we wanted Indian food. Well, we're in Manhattan, and there are 10,000 Indian restaurants around. I don't know how you could possibly choose uh, what is the best Indian restaurant in Manhattan. So what we did is we went to the hotel concierge, um, and it's his job to know what's the best Indian or whatever restaurant you want. And so we went down. His name was Stan. I still remember this. Went and visited Stan and said, um, he, he said, sir, my name's Stan. How can I help you? I said, I'm looking for a really great Indian restaurant. He goes, oh, Mr. Wallen, I know just the place. He said, it's, three block, it's a three-block walk. You can be there in about 10 minutes. He said, I will call ahead, and I will call the owner personally, and I will tell him you're coming. And so I said, okay, that sounds great. And so we, we get out of our hotel. We walk down the street. I get to this restaurant. It's on the third floor. Um, it's right on the edge of Central Park. I get up to this, uh, take the elevator up. I get off the elevator, and the owner of the restaurant meets me in the lobby and says, are you Mr. Wallen? <laughs> yes, I am. I mean, it's a city of 5 million people. How did you know? He said, oh, my friend Stan told me that you'd be coming. He said, I reserved the best table in the restaurant for you. And he takes us over to the window on the third floor of this building, looking out over Central Park as the sun is setting in this restaurant, surrounded by all these people who I'm sure are more important and more famous than I am. But I got to sit next to the window. And then the owner came and made some recommendations. He said, I would love to buy you an appetizer if that's okay. Can I, because my friend Stan is so important to me and he sent you here. Can I buy you an appetizer? And so he brought us an appetizer, a sampler plate of all these things. And then, then he recommended what we should order off the menu and just took great care of us. The owner attended to us the entire, I was watching all these people around me being served by mere waiters and waitresses. And the owner of the restaurant was personally attending to me and my table. And as I left, I realized it was not because of me. It was because I knew Stan. And Stan sent me. In the same way, we place our faith in Jesus. We benefit from his relationship with the Father. We are righteous through our faith. 
Uh, the second, second righteousness that we hunger and thirst for is righteousness through sanctification. Sanctification, that is a churchy word. That is a really fancy word that really just means change or transformation. It's the process of our lives changing so that we become more and more like Jesus. As we trust in him more and more, he, he works in our lives, but this doesn't happen overnight. It's a lifelong process. You and I will not be fully sanctified until we reach glory. But as we said last week, as we mature, we won't become sinless, but we should sin less, right? But God doesn't create this kind of righteousness on, our own, on his own. He needs our cooperation. He needs our obedience. A friend of mine likes to say obedience is God's love language. We have to be a willing agent of his, an, an empty jar that's willing to be filled with his Holy Spirit, which he freely offers to everyone who believes in him and accepts him. And as we move ourselves out of the way, the Bible calls it dying to yourself. So we move ourselves out of the way, it allows God to reign in more and more areas of our life. Jesus warns that this kind of life, though, takes devotion to so much so that everything else pales in comparison and importance. Now, this kind of righteousness presents a serious challenge to us, and it's this. How much do we want that goodness? How much do we want the righteousness of God? Do we want it as much as a starving person desires food, as a parched person needs a drink? I mean, most of us, honestly, would love to have that kind of life where we have some personal righteousness because of the way that Jesus is changing us, but we aren't willing to do what it takes. I mean, just like most of us would like to be in better shape, but we aren't willing to exercise every day. Right? Their sanctification is a lot like fitness. There's an everyday aspect to it where we're constantly dying to ourselves. We're constantly pushing our own desires out of the way so that we can be in obedience to Christ. There's a, there's a faith-filled minute-by-minute kind of aspect to sanctification. It's not always in the big things. Sometimes it's obedience in those little moments where we see God in the minutia of life. I want to pause right here and just speak to people in the room who are completely frustrated by your inability to change. Like there's something going on in your life that you've been working on for so long. Maybe it's a habit that's just become ingrained. or Maybe it's a person that you have not been able to forgive. Maybe it's something you'd like to change or improve or kill. And no matter how hard you try, you can't get rid of it. Here's what you need to know. Keep seeking the Lord. That battle is not yours to fight right now. If you keep trying to change your own life, you're just like the Pharisees. You're, you're trying to change your life from the outside in. You need to give God room to move in your circumstances. And if you've been in that situation for a while now, you've got to take your eyes off of that thing, whatever it is, and turn them to the risen Christ. And maybe you're in a place right now that you might call a spiritual desert. You haven't prayed for a while. You don't really feel like praying or you haven't picked up your Bible in weeks. Even the thought of coming to church this morning made you break out in hives because you didn't want to be around all those people or you didn't want to hear that message that God had for you. When Jesus is talking to you this morning, keep seeking him. Keep, if you truly hunger and thirst for his righteousness, it can only be satisfied by an unending pursuit of the person of Jesus. He's a, a real person. He went to the cross for you. He was raised up. He sits now at the right hand of God. He is a real person that you can have a real relationship with. You can talk to him right now. It's so important that we get that foundation right. It's so important that we understand that only in Christ can we be made righteousness. That foundation is so important. This week, 
I, uh, my neighbor came over and he um, had some of those landscape stones, you know the ones I'm talking about, that uh, kind of look like rocks, but, but they're not really cinder blocks, but they kind of look like rocks. And he was trying to get rid of them, and we wanted to build a wall. And uh, so he said, if you come haul them, you can have them. And so we, I, we built this wall this week. Um, and what I realized very quickly is that even though what you want is for that top row to be completely level, but you don't do that work on the top row, you do it on the bottom. And so what you have to do is you have to dig and make sure that there is a firm foundation for that bottom row. And once you do that, the rest of the rows are easy, right? You have to get that foundation right first. And in sanctification, it's the same way that we have to build that foundation so that it's firm and solid and level. And then God can just build on top of that and build on top of that. And he can sanctify us as we go. But it's up to us to build that foundation of that relationship with Christ. There is... Seek his righteousness first, and all these other things will be added to you. So there's righteousness through faith, there's righteousness of sanctification, but righteousness is not strictly a personal thing. And so we also hunger and thirst for the righteousness of community, righteousness of community. This is just a reminder that as Christians, we are called to live in this world and not of this world. It's a reminder that we're not here on earth to blend in, but to make a difference, Jesus called us to be salt and light. He he reminded us to be people of both grace and truth. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in in Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. We are not citizens of this world, he says, as we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. But part of hunger and thirst for righteousness means a desire on our part to see what's right in this world. It's a hunger and thirst for justice. And we look around and we see so much wrong in our broken world. And we want to see that fixed. So as we see racism, as Christians, we want to see that fixed. We want to make sure, we want to demonstrate what it means to love all people. When we see poverty, we look around and we try to find ways to make sure that nobody goes hungry. We see hatred and division. We are there to be the peacemakers. When we see needs in our community as Christians, as the church, We give generously because we realize that we can never outgive God, that he's given us everything that we have to begin with. And and so what is it if we just take a little bit of what God's given us and pass on to somebody else? But there's a struggle that we face as Christians living in this world and as a church in this world. And so, for example, when the Supreme Court ruled this week that all states must allow same-sex marriage in all 50 states, I mean, this didn't come as a surprise, I think, to most of us. Public opinion has shifted sharply over the past five to ten years uh, in in its acceptance of same-sex marriage over a pretty short period of time, really. If you look back at the elections of 2008, we had candidates on one side that are now on the other side. I'm sure that even right now there are many, many different opinions represented in this room, and that's okay because Genesis is first and foremost a place where everyone is welcome. It's a church where we seek the truth and Jesus together, and this is not the most important issue The most important issue is and always will be our relationship with Christ, but it's the issue that everyone's talking about, everyone in our culture is talking about, so I want you to know what's important to me and what's important to our church. First is this, God is our authority. He's the authority. We can't do anything apart from him and knowing him and knowing his word for us, and we believe, as seen in Genesis 1 and 2, that God made us male and female for that, that he created marriage to be a unique union between one man and one woman. So what do we do in light of that? You know, as a church, we we have two choices, three choices maybe. We can give up on truth and what the scriptures say as a way of avoiding conflict with our culture. A lot of churches are doing that today. We're not going to do that. 
We can scream without rage. We can reject the whole world. We can build walls around our homes and our church and tell the whole world they can go to hell. We're not going to do that either. That would mean to reject the truth as well and to give up on what God has called us to be in this world. Or we can stand as Christians with conviction and kindness as a church, with grace and truth. We can love people no matter what their beliefs or what their behaviors. Our world is changing, but God never changes. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's still sovereign. He's still on his throne. And our mission to help people find their way back to God is still the same. And I think it's no accident that Jesus' words on hungering and thirsting for righteousness are the words that we're talking about today. I mean, as a church, Jesus' words call us to do three things, I think, in this situation. Number one is to pray, to pray like we've never prayed before. Pray as a church, pray as individuals. We should pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that what we want? We want Jesus' kingdom, God's kingdom to be here. Is that what we hunger and thirst for? If so, we should pray that way. We got to pray and seek God and how to respond and how to engage people who are certainly going to hate us. We must pray and ask God how to love our friends and neighbors and coworkers and family members who disagree with us, no matter what side of the spectrum we're on. The second thing is this, we should love our neighbors. We've got to pray and ask God to give us a heart of compassion so that we can be the first and the best at loving our neighbors. You know, the very first church had something that was very unique, and that was that the whole world looked on them and, and saw what was special about the church, that they had favor in the eyes of the people. Church, I'm going to be honest. We got, we got a lot of rebuilding to do. We got a lot of trust to rebuild with the world. You know, we've got to be the best at loving people that Jesus puts in our lives. Jesus was great at this. He was full of grace and truth. Scripture tells us he was not half grace and half truth. He was 100% of both. I believe that we can seek to live the same way. It's going to be hard, but I'm praying that we need to be able to love people the way Jesus called us to love them, not without compromising the truth he's revealed to us. In fact, one of the things that's gotten me most excited this week is I think the conversation now changes to where it's no longer a conversation about ideas, but it's about people. You know, that the conversation stops happening on Facebook and Twitter and starts happening across backyard fences and across dinner tables. And I'm excited for that. The third thing we can do is we can commit ourselves to righteousness. Not arrogant, self-righteous life, but a life completely sold out and dependent on God. I mean, now more than ever, we must live our lives with such passion and love and obedience to God that our world will not be able to look at our lives without thinking, there's something different about you. I want to know about that. What is that? Something I need in my life. I think Russell Moore said it well in his piece in the Washington Post on Friday. He said, no matter what happens in this world, no one can put Jesus back in the tomb. And that's good news this morning. Galatians 6, 9 reminds us to not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And like all the other Beatitudes, this one has a promise attached to it, for they shall be filled. In this way, Jesus reminds us that we have a lot of appetites. The people that hunger in this world, we can eat, but we'll get hungry again. If we're thirsty, we can have a drink, but we'll be thirsty again. But those who hunger or thirst for righteousness, who seek out the righteousness of God, the promise here is that we will be filled that we will be satisfied, finally full and complete in Jesus once and for all. I can't wait for that day. 
Are you excited for that day? If you're a follower of Jesus, I, I eagerly, impatiently wait the day that I'm with him forever. But for now, we remember his work on the cross through the taking of communion. It's something that we do once a month here at Genesis Church. And uh, just as a reminder, here's what we believe about communion. You don't, have to be a, uh, you don't have to be a part of Genesis to take communion with us. You just have to be a follower of Jesus. If you've made that decision in your heart to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, you're welcome to join us in communion. If you haven't done that yet, my recommendation to you is just sit it out. Just let this moment pass by. Have a seat. Um, take a look at the words on the screen. Listen to this song. Think about what it means for your life. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And when I do, uh, we'll, we'll have two stations in the front and two in the back. You can go uh, front or back and grab the elements, take them back to your seat and take them in your time. And then we're going to go into a time of worship through song together. Would you pray with me? God, I'm so thankful that you've given us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. I'm thankful that you've promised that those of us who have that will be filled, that, that we are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. Lord, I don't know what that means in my life or in the lives of all of us here as far as what we do now as, as we sense that hunger and thirst. But God, I know that I need to pursue you even more fully than I have. I want to come after you harder and faster and seek your will in my life. And I pray for each and every one of us in this room that that's what we want to do. That this, this statement creates in us a desire to move forward in our pursuit of you first and foremost. And so, God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the sacrifice that he made on the cross. And, Lord, as we celebrate that now and the fact that you've taken all our sin away, just pray that you'd help us remember this as we go today, that you've already paid the price, that you've already, for those of us who are in Christ, you've already made us righteous. We pray that you continue the good work that you've began. We pray these things in Jesus' name.